John opens chapter 12, providing us a very clear time frame for where we're at in Jesus' earthly ministry. In John chapter 12, verse 1, he opens by telling us, then six days before Passover, Jesus came back to Bethany, and we know in context, from a town called Ephraim. As I noted in our previous study, what makes this particular detail significant for us, what makes it worthy of note, is that we are now on the precipice of the week that will include Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. This detail provided by John six days before Passover places us the Saturday before all of these events. From this point forward, the remainder of John's gospel will focus almost exclusively on the events in Jesus' life related to the Feast of Passover. It's quite amazing, actually, that roughly 50% of the Gospel of John focuses on roughly seven days of Jesus' life, this singular week. Now, here's why this is not only appropriate by John, but in many ways completely warranted. You see, the next seven days, commonly known as the Passion of the Christ, Jesus' week of passion, will mark one of the most significant weeks in the history of mankind. It is truly a week that changed the world. Now, before we continue in light of this larger point, I think it would be helpful if you understood just a few details about the Feast of Passover in general. First, according to the law of Moses, Passover was one of the three main pilgrimage feasts, these festivals in Judaism. In addition to the Feast of Pentecost, which occurred in the summertime, and tabernacles, which came in the fall harvest, Pentecost was the first of the three taking place in the spring. For this particular week, Jews from all over the Roman Empire would make their way to the city of Jerusalem to join in this very incredible celebration. The second thing you should note, aside from this being one of the three main pilgrimage feasts, is that Passover had come to really be the most festive and patriotic of the three. And the reason for this is what Passover commemorated. Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of Israel way back during their Egyptian captivity. Now that was presently significant because what was the climate for Israel? They were now under a different occupation, that of Rome. So this was patriotic. Now aside from that, Passover additionally held a a more practical religious connotation, which made it additionally important. Passover was the opportunity that the people could come to the temple specifically to offer a sacrifice to atone for their sins on the Day of Atonement. Finally, while Passover wouldn't begin officially until Thursday at 6 p.m. with the the Seder dinner, the meal, which, on a side note, is actually, according to the Jewish time frame, Friday morning, according to the Jews, evening and morning were the first day. So their calendar, their day, began at 6 p.m. and ran to 6 p.m., much different than ours. And so Thursday evening at 6 p.m. is actually Friday, the day of Passover. The feast, though, lasted traditionally for seven full days. 
And the reason that's important is that every day of the week leading up to Passover was important and held a significance. John begins this section in verse 12 by saying, The next day. So chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, which is the Sunday before Passover. John says that a great multitude had come to the feast. Now pause for just a minute. What we're going to encounter here is what is known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Historically, we commemorate this particular day by calling it Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday before Easter. This was such a significant event that all four of the gospel writers include it in their accounts. Our strategy this morning, because this is such an important moment, is that we're going to read John's narrative, which, full disclosures, is limited. And then we're going to supplement it with the additional accounts of the triumphal entry that are provided to us in Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. What we're going to do is we're going to harmonize their accounts. Now let's begin with what John tells us. Chapter 12, verse 12, The next day a great multitude come to the feast. They heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet the Lord and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then as John often does, he gives us a little bit of commentary, writing that his disciples, Jesus' disciples, including himself, did not understand these things at the first. So when it happened, they didn't really understand the implications of what was going on, but John says, When Jesus was glorified, we remembered that these things were written about Jesus and had been done by him. Therefore, the people who were with Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also went out and met Jesus because they heard the things he had done. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, this is kind of their conclusion to the day's events, we're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, John, as mentioned, he kind of provides us just a skeleton account of what happens on this day. So let's kind of add some flesh to the skeleton, to the bones from the other Gospels. Again, if you try to go to any of the three passages, you're going to have a hard time following me. But C316.tv, here's the harmony, the account. We're told that when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage from Bethany, So Jesus is working his way to Jerusalem, going through the suburbs. Bethpage, Bethany. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, immediately you will find a donkey tied. This this word donkey, it's, it's in the feminine. It's a female donkey. Jesus also says you'll find a colt, which would be the younger uh, male child of the female. With her, which no one has sat upon. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. So the disciples, and likely the two disciples are Peter and John. They went and did as Jesus commanded. 
They went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, so they loosed it. But the owner who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosening the colt? So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. And all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, the king is coming to you lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set Jesus on the colt, or the smaller of the two. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went before, and those who followed, as Jesus is making his way down the Mount of Olives, they begin to rejoice. He's making his way to the city and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. This multitude was also crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, speaking of the crowd, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. So when he had looked around, the hour was already late. He went out to Bethany, back to the, ha- the house of, of Simon, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Went out to Bethany with the twelve. Again, John opens his account telling us that the next day, from Jesus' arrival in Bethany, and this supper that he shares with his friends. This is the same supper we looked at last Sunday where Mary comes and anoints Jesus' feet with the precious ointment. John says that a great multitude is an unknown number. They begin to make their way into Jerusalem the next day for the Passover festivities, this being on Sunday. According to a first century historian, a man by the name of Josephus, during this week, the week of Passover, the population of Jerusalem, keep in mind, would swell to more than three times the normal size. Again, this is hard to imagine But according to Josephus, the population of Jerusalem during Passover would have been somewhere around 2.7 million people. Eyewitness account. Now as you seek to play this scene out in your mind, you get the real running. Please know that the atmosphere in Jerusalem, and this is completely aside from, from Jesus or his arrival or his involvement. Just generally speaking, the atmosphere during Passover would have been lit. I mean, from the chance to go into the city, from the opportunity to make an offering, Passover. Passover was naturally patriotic. It was a celebration. It was intrinsically nationalistic. Keep in mind, 
as you see this great multitude begin to swell over the Mount of Olives, filling the city, they are singing, specifically the Hallel Psalms, which you can read on your own, Psalms 113 through 118, as well as the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. Because Jerusalem was situated on top of a mountain, everyone, no matter which direction you came from, would ascend to the city. So you had these Hallel Psalms and the Psalms of Ascent. Songs that they're singing as they're making their journey. Now setting aside even the political climate related to Jesus, though the Feast of Passover was festive, because of the the patriotic and nationalistic nature of things, there was always, as you can imagine, below the surface, a, a real uneasiness about what could happen. There was an anxiety below the surface. You had this massive increase in population. Patriotic nature. You had ongoing unrest in Judea, all of which made the Roman governor at this time, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. You see, he always feared, there was a trepidation, that of all the weeks, revolution, revolt, could occur during Passover. As such, again, Josephus tells us that the increased presence of Roman soldiers would have been ten times the norm for this week. Imagine that Jerusalem was a powder keg and all it needed was a spark. Clearly, another contributing factor to the growing excitement of this particular Passover was the unexpected news that Jesus of Nazareth was actually coming to Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, because the religious establishment, as we saw in the previous chapter, had already put out a hit on Jesus. There was already a public uh, warrant for his arrest. Most people assumed that Jesus would be a no-show. And yet, word begins to spread through the pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem that indeed Jesus was on the way. John recalls for us how the crowds, they go out to meet him. Now people, they admired his bravery, his tenacity. Even with the fear and likelihood of being arrested, they recognized that Jesus had come to the city of David to publicly present himself. And so they come out to receive him. John, writing probably 50 years after the fact, recalling the events himself, He remembers how they worked their way down the western slope of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, making their way to the temple. And as they're doing this, he can remember the people taking palm branches, branches of the palm tree, and they began to wave them as Jesus approached. Now the other writers, as we noted, they remember just tree branches. But John was struck by the palm in particular. He's the only gospel writer to mention it it specifically. Since the time of the Maccabees in 150 B.C., which was another revolt that was put down by the Romans, the palm had become the de facto symbolism of Jewish patriotism. It wasn't an accident that they were waving palm branches, palm trees. It wasn't because that's what was available or that was what was there. There was a significance, a connotation. It was a way that you would greet a revolutionary. 
In addition to this dramatic effect of waving these palm branches and laying down clothes and fronds along the path, John also says this multitude began actively crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Not only are they quoting directly from a messianic psalm, Psalms 118, but this word Hosanna also plays a role. The word means save now. See, as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, riding on this colt, the people are not only just hailing him as the king of Israel, but they're making a specific appeal to Jesus as their king to save them. It's as though they're crying out in the context of of an oppression, you are the king of Israel, save us now, Jesus. The other writers, as we noted, they give us kind of a more complete accounting. They, They write that they began to rejoice and they were praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. In addition to what John writes, they, they, they also said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the kingdom. They saw a kingdom was coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There's no question that this moment was quite incredible. Now before we unpack what's happening, and more specifically why what's happening is very, very significant, Can we just be honest for a moment? We've been looking at Jesus' ministry. We've been traveling with him for some time now. But can't we at least admit how, how this scene seems oddly out of character for Jesus? I mean, think about it for a moment. Consider that time and time again, has Jesus entered with to such fanfare? No, not at all. Over and over and over again, Jesus has actively and repeatedly discouraged any type of public praise or adulation. He's gone out of his way to avoid these things. Even recently, following the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus retreated from large crowds to avoid controversies. And yet, in this instance, something has clearly changed. Not only do we see Jesus encouraging, embracing their praise. But we actually see Jesus intentionally orchestrating the events of that day to bring attention to himself. It's out of character. So we have to ask, why? Why such a dramatic shift in his public presentation? Well, not mentioned by John, the first part of our answer. And the answer will be twofold. But the first part is actually found in the exchange that occurs between Jesus and the religious Pharisees. Again, back to the text, as this incredible scene is unfolding in front of them, these men, these religious leaders now fearing. I mean, you have a Jesus coming in, 2.7 million people crying out. They're hailing him a king. Like they're fearful how Rome would view this and handle it. This was a public outburst, which is why they come to Jesus and they're like, bro, rebuke your disciples. This does not end well for any of us. (laughs) And not only does Jesus kind of brush off their suggestion, but then he says something kind of crazy. He says, if I were to tell the disciples to be quiet, guess what would happen? The rocks, and there's a lot of rocks, would begin crying out. That's 
quite strange, isn't it? And, and if I can make this scene even more bizarre, all the while this is happening, you know, you picture Jesus' triumphal entry, all this praise and adulation of the palm branches and this makeshift pathway, and you kind of see Jesus kind of like with his, you know, with his queen, you know. You know, just kind of accepting the praise, acknowledging what was going on. Thank you. Yes, I'm here. That's not his reaction at all. While this is all happening, we're told, Luke actually tells us, that as Jesus is drawing near, all this fanfare, Jesus is weeping. He's not like, he's bawling his eyes out. He's crying. And specifically, he says, as he sees the city, the people, if you had known that this is your day, the things that make for peace, clearly they didn't, and Jesus says, but these have been hidden from your eyes. You see, as Jesus is making his way to the city, he prophesies of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he cites the reason as being the fact they did not know the time of their visitation. Again, Jesus here, he's, a, he's defining this day as their day and his visitation. Now don't miss this. In response to the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders and their command, he knocked things off which proved they only had no idea what was going on or they wouldn't have made such a suggestion, Jesus is saying, because they missed it all, Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's what he's saying. That's pretty harsh. In a sense, what he's saying is that their ignorance of his triumphal entry and what it meant would have devastating repercussions. Now, in order to understand why that's the case, it's important we discuss for a moment one of the most radical prophecies in all of the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's a prophecy that was given to Daniel some 600 years before this day. Now, for a little context, Daniel is a Hebrew man in exile. The Babylonian Empire has sacked Jerusalem. The city was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The walls came a-tumbling down, and the city was flattened. All of the best men the brightest, the smartest, with the most potential, were taken back to Babylon to serve the king. Daniel was, was one of these men, along with three of his amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel here in Babylon, a thousand miles away, Israel's been, he's, he's worried, specifically that God was done with Israel. That they had ruined things, that they had blown it. Now to calm his fears... That God was not done with Israel. God gives Daniel a prophetic vision that includes with it a timeline for God's dealings in the future with Israel. We know this theologically as Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Now you don't have to turn there, but let me read you a section of this prophecy that's recorded in Daniel chapter 9. Specifically, I'm going to read from verses 24, 25, and 26. God revealing to Daniel says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up all vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So there's a lot that's going to happen. 
Know therefore, God says, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets will be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it will be like a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of this prophecy, but I do want to discuss what pertains to Jesus' triumphal entry. In this prophetic word, God begins by telling Daniel that 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, within the context of, of Daniel's fears, God is clearly speaking of the Hebrew people, your people, Daniel's people, and his city, the city of Jerusalem. Now, this phrase, 70 weeks, it's a terrible translation from Hebrew into English. In the original language, God is actually referencing 70 groupings of seven. That's the literal translation. And in the context of this being a timeline, we understand that God is establishing a grouping of, think of it, 70 sets of seven years. This means that God is telling Daniel that as it pertains to his people and the city, that God has set aside 490 years to finish his dealings with Israel. Now, following that statement, God continues by telling Daniel that when this 490-year timeline will commence, he gives, he gives a marker. Daniel, you're going to know when things start by one event, he says, with the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, again, in the moment that Daniel is receiving this vision, this word, Jerusalem, the temple, they lay in complete and utter ruin. In fact, the fulfillment of this particular prophecy wouldn't be realized till after the Babylonian Empire had fallen and a Persian king known as Artaxerxes ends up issuing the official decree allowing the Jewish people to return to the land and rebuild Jerusalem. According to the timeline given to us in Nehemiah 2 verse 1 of this decree, that command by Xerxes, mentioned here in Daniel 9, happened on March 14th, 445 B.C. Again, I'm going to give you a lot of facts, a lot of information. It's all written out, c316.tv. So finally, in addition to letting Daniel know that there's 490 years determined to deal with Israel, and letting him know when those 490 years would begin with this command to rebuild Jerusalem, God gives Daniel another monumental event on the prophetic timeline pertaining to his dealings with Israel. God says, from this future command to restore and build Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, What makes this statement one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Bible is that God is telling Daniel 600 years before the fact, the very day that the Messiah would present himself to Israel. Let me paraphrase this. It's as though God is saying, Daniel, when this decree goes forth, 
that allows the people to go back to the land to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. When that happens, extrapolate from that date, seven weeks and 62 weeks, or literally 69 sets of seven years. Let me do the math for you. That's 483 years. You will know the date of the Messiah's appearing. Now again, according to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, God revealed in Scripture, think about it, that exactly 483 years or 173,880 days using the Babylonian calendar of 360 days, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem, Messiah the Prince would present himself to Jerusalem. If you take March 14th, 445 B.C., and you add to that date 173,880 days, that will place you on April 6, 32 AD, which is the exact day historically most scholars believe that Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It's amazing. Now what this tells us is that when Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for failing to know that this was the day of their visitation. It's this that he's referring to. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were the experts, the religious scholars of their day. They should have known Daniel's prophecy. On this day, they should have gotten a notification on their iPhone. Hey, the Messiah is going to appear. This is the day. God had been crystal clear when the Messiah would present himself. And yet they missed it because they did not know the time of their visitation. Now there is no doubt that Jesus, he broke with the standard protocol of keeping it low key because of what this specific day represented. He even says that the Messiah would be cut off. He presented himself they didn't accept it. And yet he, he accepted the praise of the masses because he was presenting himself as their king, as their Messiah. He was entering the king of Israel, which is why the very suggestion that disciples should be quiet, Jesus is like, that would be impossible. For the rocks would cry out because all of the universe knows what should be happening today. And yet there is another reason that this day is so powerful, why Jesus breaks protocol. In addition to presenting himself to Israel as their king. There's another reason Jesus orchestrated the events the way that he didn't. Now, now John, he doesn't provide us these details, mainly because the other three accounts have already been written and in circulation. So he's, there's not a whole lot I can add to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, so I'm going to give you kind of the flyby. So John doesn't give us a lot of the details around Jesus' preparation for his entry, other than the fact that he tells us that he sat on a young donkey to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9. But the other authors have a lot to say, don't they? Now, I don't want to take a real hard right to our Bible study, but I do want to explain why Jesus entering Jerusalem riding a young donkey was so significant, aside from the fact that it fulfilled prophecy. Now, for starters, riding on a donkey was not demeaning. We kind of get that idea, you know, that this was kind of beneath a normal guy and that Jesus, maybe he's just articulating his humility. No. 
It was not demeaning to ride on a donkey. In actuality, a king, following a great victory, would ride into town on a donkey to signify peace. Though this isn't biblical, there was even a rabbinic tradition popular during this day that if the people were ready to receive their Messiah, he would come into Jerusalem riding on a white stallion. But if they weren't ready, he'd come riding on a donkey. Again, this should have provided more evidence to what was happening to the religious leaders. And yet, the fact Jesus entered Jerusalem the Sunday before the Feast of Passover riding on a donkey meant way more than the rabbinical tradition even suggests. According to the law, pilgrims for this feast were required to bring with them a lamb, a spotless lamb, to make an offering for their sins, a sacrifice. Aside from this, it was even stipulated that the lamb would have to live with the family the three days prior to the offering in order to develop a relational connection. It was all part of the process. Now, as you're playing the scene out in your mind, a weeping Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, riding on a donkey with mobs of people surrounding him, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. As you picture this makeshift pathway of tunics and coats and palm branches being waved in celebration, there is one thing I promise you don't picture, you should. Because it's Passover, people are coming to the temple to make a sacrifice. Again, every day had a significance. Most notably, on this Sunday, before the Passover, lambs were required to be presented by the people in the temple for the priests. Over the next day, this would be followed by an inspection, an examination, in order to ensure the sacrificial lambs were pure and spotless, an acceptable offering. Now, realize, as this triumphal entry scene is happening, as Jesus is making his way into the city, there are literally sheep everywhere. Again, according to the annals of Josephus, during Passover, some 256,500 lambs were brought to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. So many lambs were slaughtered that the Kidron Valley would become a river of actual blood. It was crazy. You go to the Temple Mount today, you'll see the aqueducts and the whole systems of irrigation to get the blood out. Now, you want to take a guess or a gander at how lambs were transported. Now, because a lamb had to remain pure and spotless, a lamb couldn't have any blemish to be an acceptable sacrifice. The challenge, if you were a pilgrim, was how do you ensure your little lamb remains pure and spotless through a difficult journey through the Judean wilderness? <laughs> it was completely normal and customary that young lambs were transported in satchels carried, you want to take a guess, by donkeys. You could put a picture up. This custom exists today. That ewe lambs for offering were placed in satchels on donkeys, which means not only are there sheep everywhere, there are donkeys everywhere. Think about it. 
as you're picturing the scene, Jesus is not the only one riding on a donkey. He just happens to be the only human being riding on a donkey. All around Jesus, as he's making his way to the city, are donkeys loaded down with lambs coming to be sacrificed. You see, Jesus broke protocol on this day. Not only because he was presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah, a day long predicted by Daniel the prophet, but Jesus came on this Sunday, Palm Sunday, to present himself as our Passover lamb, literally riding a donkey. Now don't forget the testimony of John the baptizer, all the way back in in John 1 verse 29. The first testimony we're given of Jesus is what? Well, we read that John saw Jesus coming towards him, and this is what he said. The first testimony of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And and don't forget, this was not the Lamb of man. Jesus was not a, a, a Lamb that sinful man would offer to atone for sin. This was the Lamb of God, a Lamb that God would offer on man's behalf. And again, please understand, this was always the plan. Back in Genesis 22, another event that foreshadows all of this. Let me read you a little section of Scripture. We're told that Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? This is when God asked Abraham to go sacrifice his only begotten son on a mountain of Moriah. But Abraham said to his son, Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And we know that word for isn't in the text. Literally, he's saying, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. You see, it's in this moment, the triumphal entry, that what is God doing? He is presenting to Jerusalem, to the people, a lamb. He's presenting himself the lamb to be sacrificed. And how so fascinating that all of this is happening. The exact same mountain that Isaac had this encounter with his father Abraham. Jerusalem was at the precipice of Moriah. Now as we close our time together, in verse 16, John, he, he, he makes an honest admission. He says, we had no idea what was going on. I mean, that's what he says. He's like, we had no clue. What was happening on this day? Yeah, it kind of seemed weird to us. And yet, when Jesus was glorified, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, well, we put it all together. It made sense. But what a sad admission that in the moment, everyone there missed what was happening. The moment Jesus presents himself as their king and to us, As the lamb, everyone missed it. For starters, it is clear that the first component to their ignorance was a lack of biblical understanding. If anyone knew the scriptures, what occurred on that day would have been correctly seen for what it was. And you know, for giggles, if you knew what was happening, that Jesus, yes, was the king, but he was the king that came to suffer. If you recognize that as Jesus was riding that donkey, 
Do you think you would have been, you would have been in praise? You would have been in glory? But you think you would have been in celebration? If you had known what Jesus was coming to do, you would have been on your knees, prostrate on your face, in tears. If you truly had accepted what was happening. The atmosphere would have been different. See, God hadn't been vague. Jesus hadn't been unclear. And while the people rightly saw that he was their Messiah, they missed the moment because they didn't realize what he had come to do. They missed the moment because they didn't realize what Jesus had actually come to accomplish. What do they cry out? They cry out, Hosanna, save now. And that was the appropriate appeal for such a moment. But it was misguided and misplaced. You see, Jesus hadn't come to save them from the tyranny of Rome. He had come to save them from the bondage of sin as the Lamb of God. You know, ultimately, the grand lesson of this passage is the fact that you will always miss the importance of the moment if you fail to recognize what Jesus has come to save you from. Beyond this, if you fail to see Him as a Savior for sin and miss the moment, what results? What resulted for these people? An inevitable judgment. While in some regards, I guess you can give the masses a pass, the religious men, they should have known. They were without excuse. They should have realized what was happening, but they chose to be ignorant. Because they feared the repercussions that accepting Jesus would have for their lives. These men rightly knew that accepting Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, it would have been a threat to their power, their standing, their position, their moralism. The reaction to the scene unfolding was pitiful. John closes the section writing, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Basically, they're not stopping him. They say the world has gone after him. These religious men, instead of possessing any measure of self-awareness, Jesus' triumphal entry did the opposite. It only served to steal them in their resolve to have him killed. And none of this was lost on Jesus. He's weeping because he knows what's going to result. They would reject him. The Messiah would be cut off. The people of the prince would destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it would be like a flood. And of course, the fulfillment of those two things happened. Jesus that week would be crucified. The Messiah would be cut off, rejected. And then in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian would come and sack and destroy Jerusalem. He would destroy the temple. And as Jesus prophesied, not one stone would be left upon another. They would accidentally light the huge garments in the temple on fire. The temple would act as a, an oven. We come so hot, all of the gold would melt, run down between the stones. They took one stone upon the next stone just to get the gold out. Completely and utterly destroyed. This morning, the lesson... Will you see Jesus for who he is? He's not just a friend. He's not just a moral example. 
He's not just a guru. He's not the divine Oprah. Up in heaven. Trying to tell you how to be a better you. No, Jesus is a savior for sin. That you can't be a better you. That you need to become somebody other than you. Which is what he wants to do. To take out this heart and replace it with his. To remove these tendencies and transform them more into his image and likeness. But you will miss what Jesus wants to do in your life if you don't see him for who he is. More than anything, more than all, he is the Lamb of God. Given by God to atone and pay the penalty of your sin. Jesus not the only one riding a donkey. Just the only human sacrifice. And so, Father, Lord, we just let that word settle in.